0: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is different from the usual fare, it's a recording of Manduhai Buyandelger's keynote address, Self-Polishing and Electoral Selves, Elections and the New Economies of Democratization in Post-Socialist Mongolia, given at the 2019 Annual Sayuz Symposium, 2019. sayuz was held at the University of Pittsburgh this year, and the organizers asked if I would record the talk and release it on the podcast. So, here it is. Manduhai Buyandelger is an associate professor of anthropology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's the author of Tragic Spirit, Shamanism, Gender, and Memory in Contemporary Mongolia, published by the University of Chicago Press. This talk is adapted from her forthcoming book, tentatively titled, A Thousand Steps to the Parliament, Women Running for Election in Post-Socialist Neoliberalizing Mongolia. Here's Zmandahai Bilyandagur, on self-polishing and electoral selves in Mongolia.
1: My paper today is a kind of a uh, walk through parts of my manuscript. Um, the first part is going to be dealing with some um, concepts, um, mostly trying to. Um, Uh, distance uh, something that is taken for granted or uh, flip uh, into a direction that seems to be interesting and the later part would be uh, more on women and self polishing and electoral selves uh, just in case you were wondering what the trajectory uh, trajectory of the talk would be so it's titled self polishing and electoral selves elections in the new economies of democratization in post socialist Mongolia um, what drew me to study parliamentary elections was actually a collective euphoria. Since democratiz- democratization in 1990, Mongolia's democratic elections held every four years have been filled with excitement, ostent- ostentatious campaigns, and loud and ongoing debates about all things electoral against the country's in- uh, background of inequality, environmental degradation, and the slumbering national leadership. Elections have quickly evolved from self-contained <coughs> events that were outside of the ordinary, either as hyperstructures, as um, Mukulika Benerji argues, or rituals of the state, as Benedict Anderson had noted, into a continuous and all-encompassing force that structures the everyday, which I call the electionization. Mongolians use neologism, which which basically means to electionize. Um, And it's primarily a term that describes individual feeling of excitement and all activities related to an individual's obsession with elections. I also mean to convey with this term the sprawling nature of political campaigns, the penetration of electoral politics into everyday life, and the ways that social structures built for election campaigns have come often to take over what are usually state and community roles in governing and maintaining the country. Mongolia has become increasingly dependent on elections for basic infrastructural, bureaucratic, and organizational functions, especially in the face of the state's sluggishness and electionization becomes a fragmented, surrogate form of governing. Um, I spend a lot of time in my book manuscript describing what this governing means, but just to give you an example, Uh, uh, activities such as allocation of jobs and gigs by parliamentary candidates, um, decision-making regarding uh, new roads, distribution of aid packages and college scholarships, post-disaster problem solving, building of new athletic centers and even nomination for medals and honors, and much more takes place as an extension of, if not part of electoral campaigns. So how is it not governing? Elections have influenced almost all spheres of life, not only because of the legislatures that the newly elected parliamentary members bring in, which is their actual job, but also because electoral campaigns constitute the industries, effects and practices of neoliberalizing country. During non officially non-election times, campaigns uh, secretly sponsor community gatherings like the Lunar New Year New Year celebrations for the elderly, or regional horse racing festivals. And uh, do all sorts of things that later will be framed as um, electoral campaigns. Um, Many uh, Mongolians label these practices vote buying, and so do political scientists. Anthropologists who have studied such practices see them as vernacularization of electoral campaigns. Uh, more. Legacies of ritualized elections and face-to-face registrations from the socialist period have influenced the new competitive elections in the democratic era. So Uh, Unlike in other countries where the institution of democratic elections has to promote voting rights, institute suffrage movements, and find ways to systematize registration and reach out less literate voters, in Mongolia, all of these were already in place from socialism. As a result, even though the voter participation rate has declined since since late 1990s, it still remains among the highest in the world, from 82% in 2000 to 72% in 2016. uh, Such a high participation rate is a puzzle against the backdrop of the Mongolians increasing disenchantment with the country's leadership. However. because elections itself is such an all-encompassing structural force, it it sort of perpetuates participation um, and propels this uh, uh, voting practice. Uh, The questions here to ask here are, um, are the following. Uh, Why elections are so prominent? Why are they such influential influential much beyond the designated events of choosing the next batch of legislators and why elections are structuring everyday life? How do elections affect subject and subjectivities and transformation of gender? So uh, these questions um, might be a little distant given the fact that there is such a difference between how elections are carried out in Mongolia and, let's say, in the United States, but only until 2016. When 2016 happened, I felt like uh, what was going on, the hype, the electionization started arriving to the United States. So if I was talking about this before, which I did, before 2016, it was so distant for people. And then once 2016 happened, Uh, electionization, yes, electoral selves, yes, we are all affected by it whether we want it or not. That sort of kind of uh, started registering. So in this presentation, I illustrate the impact of elections by looking at uh, what becomes of democracy and democratic elections in practice on one hand and the transformation in particularly in this case of women uh, political candidates on the other. so just election, part of the electionization and then the next one is oasis of democracy. So, so next um, terminology that I'm gonna um, address is democratization which is kind of mundane but I hope that it's also an, uh, an interesting one in the Mongolian context. context. On July 9, 2012, then uh, United States Secretary of State Hillary Clinton visited Mongolia. The New York Times reported that Clinton, along with Obama administration, had come to view Mongolia as a model of how a democracy can be born from authoritarianism, which is an assessment that functioned as an indirect critique of neighboring China and of nearby Singapore, countries whose leaders had argued that democratic values were only possible to realize in the West. But my anthropological account offers Mongolia as an example of how democratic elections and neoliberal projects often unfold quite differently than normative models they assume. Instead of efficient and lean government, for instance, as as advocated by the proponents of neoliberalism, elections can reproduce a rather hefty form of governing based on the discretion of individual incumbents who reproduce a new clientelist state and bears more than a coincidental similarity to the earlier socialist state. Mongolia's new post-socialist political formation harbors internal contradictions in part because state socialism remained for so long 70 years to be almost exact between 1921 to uh, past 1990 and now forms democratization a kind of syncretic form with democracy. Mongolia embraced democratization in the 1990s not only as a method of organizing its political life but also as a new attribute to its national identity one that meant to set apart from earlier Soviet patronage, as well as from Mongolia's other major neighbor, China, and open doors to a greater representation in the international arena. For Mongolia, being democratic is, in addition to being a political imperative, a strong social, cultural, and economic aspiration. There is a great deal to worry within Mongolia about excessive corruption, governmental surveillance, abuses of power. So while um, the international press and American advisors and international organizations um, uh, praise Mongolia for being the oasis of democracy, Mongolians themselves have very different ideas about what is going on. Um, Research on Mongolian democratic politics, why it's important, also um, so to um, make this research a little applicable beyond Mongolia, or beyond post-socialism, is that um, democratic politics in in Mongolia, or uh, let's say even liberal democratic politics in Mongolia, uh, brings up some methodological and theoretical insights. As a non-Western, non-first world, and post-socialist place, um, Mongolia Um, as well as a social imaginary, not just a place, but also this uh, exotic uh, fantasy serves as an analytical concept, as a foil that accentuates peculiarities of some of the taken for granted, normalized, and and sometimes almost invisibilized aspects of democratization in more established, older democratic places. I hope to provide a bit of defamiliarization and a room for thinking by making legible some of the workings of democratization coupled with neoliberalism through ethnographic details of elections. Mongolian political parties, and especially by the American, uh, especially American advisors who see parliamentary elections and extravagant electoral campaigns as successful democratization. Until recently, the Western media refused to acknowledge corruption and clientelist politics in Mongolia. Um Much of western um, so uh, it is so the other thing about the Western media is that um, uh, in Mongolia is that it often treats... Mongolia's so-called third world problems, such as poverty, pollution, corruption, and economic issues as something almost innate to Mongolia, something inevitable and something expected. Democratization is taken, is treated as separate from these problems, um, if not a tool to deal and heal these issues. Right, so Mongolia is democratic, it's great, but it's dealing with these problems and the uh, democracy is gonna do a great job. This is the, usually the attitude that Western media has. Now, Mongolians on the country see these third world problems as directly related to and even caused by democratization and the, the Mongolian word is and they are neither new nor expected to be in, in Mongolia. So, one thing about um, I, I'm wondering about the perils in Eastern Europe and other places is that during socialism during Cold War Mongolia didn't consider you know it wasn't considered this the third world but once uh, socialism collapsed it sort of was relegated by the World Bank and other Western organizations as part of the third world so of course it's going to have these problems and so the advisors and the international communities who who came to work in Mongolia, they kind of treated the country as any other third world country. So gradually, I have to say, throughout my um, repeated returns, I have watched how Mongolia did turn into third world. And it's almost uh, this kind of strange sort of coincidence that happened. And and, And I'm sure it's not a coincidence. Um, The people in Mongolia often blame the national leadership, the parliament, and the government, which gets appointed by the democratically elected president for the ills of of the president. Because democratization and neoliberal transformation arrived somewhat back-to-back in the 1990s as a shock therapy, many Mongolians used the term democratization to refer to neoliberal capitalism and its challenges. Today, due to challenges related to mining, uh, corruption, as well as uh, issues with banking, the word democratization and uh, conflicts with the understanding of capitalism. In many people's speeches, especially in the context of um, uh, economic crisis, democratization has been used instead of capitalism. Many Mongolians also see democratization and multi-party electoral politics as divisive and pointless, and their views as cynical. So Mongolia doesn't want to necessarily go to uh, the origins of a communism or socialism, and yet it doesn't want to go forward with the uh, what is being laid out to them. To add to this, to remind the other point is that the parliament has morphed into campaigns on the streets. In other words, from my ethnographic perspective, the parliament in practice is a part of this electionization. So the next important part of electionization is, of course, money, right? Money, money, money. So... Electoral campaigns organize and energy energize the ailing Mongolian economy, which is dominated by inconsistent mining and pastoral nomadism. Although, it cannot be Proven due to unidentifiable campaign financing, many material and effective productions and movements of money take place in preparation for and as part of elections. Such economic activities include completing an apartment complex or subleasing a mining license or donating vehicles to governors of one's potential districts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Unlike in countries where campaigns are sponsored through a relatively transparent fundraising, in Mongolia the candidates are expected to come up with their personal funds hence only people with most wealth such as business owners dominate campaigns and incumbents often take personal credit for bringing in public resources to their districts perhaps one of the most money-based elections was in 2008 when the Mongolian people's revolutionary party promised the so-called motherland bounty or motherland gift to each citizen of Mongolia Um, It was, back then, um, equivalent of uh, 1,250 US dollars and then the competing party, which is the Democratic Party, and this is the certificate, front and back of the certificate. Um, And the competing uh, party um, also offered not motherland gift or bounty, but citizen's share, which was about 833 US dollars. Uh, the money was allocated after the elections as direct cash distributions. Because Motherland's gift was bigger, um, and um, for all other, re- for, uh, because of many other reasons, the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party uh, won the election, 2000 elections, and uh, the, the money distributions actually did take place in, uh, in different formats. It was a very messy activity, Uh, since 2008 until um, the next elections, the money was allocated. There is a long story behind it. But the problem was that while the um, elections promised the money as revenue from the mining, uh, in fact, there was no money in the banks. They promised empty uh, futures. So what ended up happening since 2008 is that the the government kept paying uh, the citizens, distributed voters uh, the money through the bank uh, as direct cash um, deliveries. At the same time, it started extracting money from mining companies. And those mining companies actually borrowed the money from other international mining companies and banks with high interest. After paying the um, um, motherland bounty, part of it only, um, and sort of fulfilling the voter's promise, the government obviously increased taxes and Mongolian economy went into deep depression and Mongolia paid, repaid with high interest the money that it got back. It's just brought the country into deep recess. Um, So when I say electionization, this is what part of it means that it's, so deep into people's livelihoods and makes such in-depth dents in people's um, banks and monies um, so that uh, basically elections do rule the country. So that's probably an extreme example. So what is the place of women candidates in this money driven competition? Despite all the odds stacked against them, such as limited funds, marginalization within politics, and overall misogyny, there has been various attempts by women to gain space in politics. Many women's uh, underlying strategies were centered on shaping electable selves, in addition to usual strategies of mobilizing voters and supporters, gathering resources, and networking. As an anthropologist, I'm not interested in the practical outcomes of women's strategies, nor am I interested in evaluating the workability of their campaigns. Instead, I want to elucidate the ways in which elections transform gender and create new kinds of women and how women also influence the elections. That way, they're subjects of electionization and also propel it even further. So they're subject and also uh, active sort of makers of electionization. Mongolian women's day-to-day activities related to the competition for seats makes legible the ways in which gender and politics co-constitute each other. I want to give just one quick example about um, the, the fact that gender and politics are co-constitutive of each other. And the example that I'm going to bring up um, is just a small story, but it's very um, uh, telling and nuanced. Um, So the woman that you see in the middle of this poster is uh, one of my main informants. And her name is Burma, and she um, used to be a leader, uh, one of the originators of uh, civil society in Mongolia. Um, And the two other men that are um, standing on her two sides, one is the former president of Mongolia, who has this hand uh, gesture, Elbuktorj. And the other one is, um, uh, his name is and he's a younger sort of acquaintance um, of So Burma was um, brought um, into this group. This is multiple mandate election where um, uh, candidates of the same party uh, compete against each other. For the seats as well as against other party members, so it's a very messy kind of situation where you go into campaigning as a group. You act as if you're one body. Um, you believe that the voter is going to make decision. Uh, it's expected that you yield to each other, but at the same time, it is a competition among these three members as well. So. Um, the question about who might get elected is obviously very open, and what kind of criteria criteria voters use are also very open and mushy. Um, so one of the things that people, uh, voters have to, uh, sorry, candidates have to do is to validate who they are, right, um, and and show that they they have the best criteria, and the. Uh, Former President um, uh, Ilpukdarj at that time um, was having um, both very positive and negative publicity. And one of the negative publicities was that he was corrupt. Um, And he, um, according to obviously the press, brought Borma in um, precisely because her reputation was clean. And she was the uh, one of the originators and heads of the civil society. So it was very difficult to attack this trio for corruption because of the woman, right? So during that election, and this is where gender comes, during that election, women in general, especially women from Democratic Party, um, had um, this image of being clean and uncorrupt. Um, And that's where women establish themselves as new members and make this female gender as clean and uncorrupt, and that was kind of spread through the society. That's the new women phenomena and new gender phenomena. Women are less corrupt than men. That's the motto. We know that that that's not true, but back then it was the the main uh, message. And then the politics capitalize on that Uh, by bringing other men uh, with some other uh, kinds of um, characteristics, right? Leadership and youth and strength and women are clean. And so in in some ways this trio trio was very complete because of these characteristics. This is what, um, for instance, this picture uh, conveys about the uh, co-constitution constitutiveness of gender in politics. And there are many other posters that has stories behind it and I just love, I I, I could do that on many posters. So anyways, according to the political theorist Claude Lefort, and this is uh, cited in John Scott's um, uh, work, in democracy with a representative system of government, Right. Uh, quote, the lo- locus of power becomes an empty, empty place. Um, Claude Lefort is juxtaposing democracy and monarchy. And that's why he sees democracy as being empty, having empty uh, place. It is such that no individual and no group can be substantial with it. And it cannot be represented. Um, More specifically, unlike in totalitarian regimes or monarchies where the physical body of the ruler represents the sovereign power, democracy is, quote, a society without a body, as a society which undermines the representation of an organic totality. This um, quote about the uh, emptiness of the the power is um, to me very revealing uh, on two occasions, one is the explosion of posters. Um, posters, uh, in hypothetical kind of way, is seem to compete um, for this empty space by literally covering every imaginable space, vertical space. And when the vertical space was finished, they turned people into posters by donning T-shirts with their portraits. When they ran out of Students, they started making pickets uh, from uh, wood and things like that, so there is this competition of filling the, this space, um, imaginable space, any imaginable space that possible. But this quote about the emptiness of power also explains the um, difficulty of electing women because it is the men's bodies, the default image that um, almost organically comes to occupy this space. So, to display um, their exclusive educational backgrounds, professional achievements, their moral righteousness, um, and what I call their intellectfulness, uh, these women um, perform as a particular kind of selves. Um, um, they live certain kinds of lifestyles and display it. They display their intellectual pursuit um, in favor of material ones. Um, and they of course display and uh, uh, maintain certain kinds of bodies. So uh, Borma is uh, the um, one of the founding members of the civil society and um, Her asset was the fact that she was uncorrupt, but also the fact that she was intellectual, right? So she was not a businesswoman. She did not own she did not own any shares with any corporation. She did not have any actually money to run. So even the money that she used to uh, run for elections was from selling her own books. So there are a lot of women who um, have embraced this. Um, this persona that is highly educated, uh, they have intellectual pursuits, and they do not necessarily associate, at least in public, with anything that has to do with business and entrepreneurship. Um, In addition to more formal campaign preparations, um, such as obtaining funds, which is different from fundraising, casting campaign speech and organizing their campaign offices, the women I met were also engaged in more informal preparations. From polishing their physical appearances, and as one aspiring candidate put it, sharpening their minds, these were long-term, self-cultivating activities that were meant to create an electable persona. Preparing to run for a parliamentary seat was a full-time and life-changing endeavor. So there are two kinds of arguments can be made based on these activities of women. One is that, yes, the elections are shaping them. But the other one is that aren't these women have been doing this self-cultivation all their lives, and so they have come to this on their own. It's not that they are influenced by elections, but just they're the personas who, should, uh, who happen to be there at the right moment. So we can debate what would be um, a good uh, thing to do. Um, So, the importance of physical beauty and uh, its democratization um, has been a recent global phenomenon. Uh, And the attention of the women politicians on their appearance um, is a part of um, uh, Transformation of gender and gendered identities in Mongolia, as well as in many other places. So, what I um, try to show about the appearance is appearance and attention to the physical part is that these uh, female candidates are operating in a, a miss, you know, in a place of um, in a place where masculinity is favored over a certain kinds of femininity, but they're also fighting with. Uh, for attention, with women who's um, who display other kinds of uh, femininity, such as uh, beautiful bodies of um, beauty pageant contestants, trophy wives, and fashion models. So, in they these um, candidates um, compete for the same amount of attention, but. A different kind of attention. So, how do they do that? It becomes an issue, and and they their goal is to attract an attention without necessarily inviting. It is about intellectfulness, but not without sexiness. They strive. Female candidates, um, for the most part, uh, in Mongolia, it has been about uh, what um, ten to thirty percent of women since democ- democratization. Um, uh, Women have been, um, the candidate poll have been women. During socialism, the uh, seats, parliamentary seats uh, seats were actually occupied by women in much greater uh, percentages. Uh, women had um, something like a quota and uh, the, the National Assembly, which is parliament had about 30% women. So socialism was Uh, nicer to women than capitalism. And uh, when women during capitalism, during uh, democratization tried to establish the quarter, it had had to go through a big fight. So that's another story, but this is something that needs to be incorporated in this. So um, who are these polished and perfect feminine selves? And what do these women do uh, in order to um, uh, you know, uh, create this electable selves. Um, based on my observation, there are three constitutive parts of self-polishing that compose the electable selves: intellectual or yundlik, inner cultivation and self-care, and building of the presentable selves through cultivating feminine and charismatic attributes. The self-styling of women politicians is a form of self-censorship meant to present an ideal feminine political subject. Women politicians use style to resist the oppressive order, not by symbolically breaking the rules and instituting their individual identity, which I really hope to see, but not much came up, but by protecting, although not hiding their sexualities through what are considered to be dignified styles and status-making accessories. In making themselves political subjects, they use bureaucratized and corporate styles of suits and dresses. Most tend to wear um, tailored, buttoned-up suits, uh, some of them Chanel-inspired, complete with high heel pumps and jewelry. And these are not just coveted items that project wealth and globally recognizable status. Through them, the women also command respect in order to keep denigration at bay, to convey equal status with men, and to protect glamour, but without an explicit invitation to sex. Um, so, when I inquired um, women ca- candidate as well as form- uh, uh, as well as parliamentarians, women parliamentarians, I asked, like, what was the most important thing? Um, that mattered to you when you were running for the, for, for the during the candidacy, and many of them said it's like it was very important that people were not laughing at us, that they were not um, sticking us into dirt, that they were not going into private lives and things like that, and so um, that was so important. And the rest we could do, they said. So. Um, I found uh, suits to be one of the most common items to wear, and the second one was uh, the um, the Mongolian um, traditional robe, deel. So I want to show a couple of pictures um, that um, speak to the candidacy, and I think uh, this, candidate, or this actually former parliamentarian by now is, I think is well known to many, some some people who know about Mongolia, um, Ayum Bilik, who is the author of uh, Green-Eyed Lama, which just came out in English. Um, and the portrait that you see of her in her book that is titled um, My, um, it's like Notes on uh, Studying in American Colleges. She was, a graduate student at Stanford, as well as a graduate student at Yale, um, and she writes about how to gain scholarships and uh, how to, you know, navigate the academia and things like that. But um, I wanted to to, um, to pay attention at her um, haircut, at the suit, um, at at the picture that is taken at the right angle, and and all of that. This picture, she said, was taken in salon where Hillary Clinton also went uh, <laughs> while she was at Yale. So, um, before joining politics, and I'm almost ending, so but this is the, the funnier part. Before joining politics, Ayungur was known as Miss, Miss, beautiful woman. Among her peers, Miss is a Mongolian word, it's not uh, meaning American word, English word, but it, Mongolians use it to um, to indicate um, a person, a woman of a particular um, physical beauty, attractiveness. Um, so Miss Emank appears, and in her homeland in Hovsgol province, she had long braids, was tall and thin, and generally beautiful. When she decided to become a politician, she cut her hair in a short bob. Um, in her images in the media, in public, and she hardly used any signals or attributes um, of femininity. She stopped wearing eye-catching jewelry, complicated hairdo, revealing clothes, and she said she really missed sandals and um, uh, sundresses. With a straight, short, bob-cut style, a power suit, and no visible makeup, a young girl was far from the decorous young women vying for validation of their looks by spectators. So that's one sort of look that she created and carried that look for four years, for actually almost eight years because she um, was repeating her uh, candidacy. She didn't win in 2004, didn't win in 2008, but she won in 2012. So how how many years she has been um, creating that figure. But the most important thing that a lot of people, especially anthropologists, appreciate is the, um, her self-transformation um, beyond her exterior. A to- was told that her voice, one of, her, of the most important tools of a politician, was too thin and high-pitched and thus not suitable for prolonged and pleasant listening. She took lessons from professional singers and pra- practiced to speak in low sub- substantive and thick voice that was also authoritative and charismatic. It took her two years of continuous practice to acquire the kind of voice that she considered appropriate for a politician. It wasn't anywhere near Elizabeth um, Yeah, the, the, that was quite scary, Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Indeed, it was after learning about Aungaryl's voice training that I understood the mysterious shifts in her voice. To her assistants, a young girl spoke in a thicker and somewhat monotonous tone, whereas to me, she spoke in a higher pitched and more dynamic tone. So um, the next person, since I'm mostly, I have time mostly to talk about the uh, exteriors. So um, this is our young girl also in her with other group, and she choreographs not only the body movements, but also the kinds of suits she's going to wear. So if you see here, here, you see everybody's wearing dark suits. Um, she even has a tie. So it's about eras- erasure. In her case, it's erasure of gender, right? Erasure of femininity, but producing a different kind of um, political candidate. So here, she's in countryside, and she's with her team. Also, they all decided to wear the same color. And she even decided to, um, they all decided to have the same bodily movement and even agreed on how hard they're gonna squeeze the voters hands when during the handshake. So um, that's her. And so uh, that's another outfit. So they all decided to uh, look similar so that women is not left out. And so this was one way to become a candidate and prepare herself for political candidacy. Okay, so suit is very important, as you can see, and so is the veil. And I would like to talk about a, a second woman. Her name is Zana, and that's her. In the sh- oops, this is this with purple shawl and white veil. Her name is Zana. She's a Outspoken feminist, um, very uh, critical of misogyny and patriarchy, and has very sharp tongue. Um, so when from what I heard, not from her but from other women politicians, is that Zana was told to wear del uh, the Mongolian uh, uh, traditional robe. Um because um, it distinguished her from her everyday dress every her everyday dress was were actually suits. she is westernized she is one of the first persons to learn English in the country. She was um, a Russian, professor of Russian language and in the 1990s when democratization began, she learned English and she became professor of english uh, she um, Uh, I will show, actually, uh, this should be her picture here. So that's her actual image in the red suit, right? So, and the oracle said, you need to, A, project gentleness, um, uh, belonging to the uh, soil, um, and show uh, femininity. So shawl, this purple shawl, is actually not a Mongolian sort of accessory. It is, it's something entirely different. Um, And so shawl is being something soft and drapey and feminine, supposed to kind of soften her image because she has very sharp tongue. Uh, She's critical, she always critiques. So this is to kind of tone down her persona. Um, The oracle apparently suggested other women, another woman who was also running for a candidacy, um, a completely different outfit, the opposite outfit, which was white uh, button-down shirts or blouses with black suits. And the reason he did so was because that woman was very gentle and soft-spoken and very quiet, and so dark suits and white shirts were meant to sharpen her image. So, besides gender, there is way to kind of play with their own uh, sort of capabilities and um, uh, kinds of persona that they show, charisma that they want to project, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, this um, is very interesting because. Um, uh, in Mongolia, deal is not as gendered as many other, as, let's say, as Western clothes, right? Del, men and women were basically, the basic deal style, the Mongolian robe is the same. Maybe there is some variation in color, but again, color is not as coded as in the United States. Men would wear like purple or lavender del and it's totally fine. So it's very hard to gender the deal. so the shawl is, is a kind of feminine attribute. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> women like Zana and most of the women who uh, are um, who have uh, um, ran for candidacy tend to be critiqued as being westernized. Uh, meaning they wear suits and they, you know, um, not they don't come from Mongolian countryside, etc. And so, in order to show that they actually belong, this also, they also shows the nas- national character and shows that they are part of Mongolian society. Um, of course, looking the looks was only one aspect of becoming an electable self. Women candidates' presentation of certain image, shaping their bodies, transforming their voices, refining their style shows that they treated their bodies as pliable and constantly improving objects under the demands of electoral competition. Their lifestyles and state of mind and their choices of channeling their energies and structuring their lives also added to the making of electable selves. These selves, as I noted earlier, are a version of neoliberal selves who perpetually change themselves under the uncertainty and pressures of the market. In this case, they d- display the temporality of gender and influence of the politics in shaping pot- particular political selves. So this is kind of a conclusion for uh, the, this part, but in, but in the lieu of conclusion, I would like to actually uh, present a quote um, that I like, and the quote is from George Lucas. Um, Election slogans exhibit a remarkable propensity for blurring differences and uniting the most divergent tendencies. I want to vernacularize Lucas's argument by drawing your attention to the homogenization of temporality. Unification of the people under certain messages and hailing voters into accepting and acknowledging the powers of the candidates through ubiquitous poster-based campaigns. In other words, there is definitely, despite the differences that women project, a tendency, um, a, a tendency to to suppress differences that are going on both on the side of the candidates and on the side of the voters. The candidates' desperate attempts to win over the voters' choices are uncomfortably palpable all around in tends to target one's bodily senses and memories. Thank you.
0: That was Mandahai Delger, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's the author of Tragic Spirits, Shamanism, Gender, and Memory in Contemporary Mongolia, published by the University of Chicago Press. The talk you just heard was adapted from her forthcoming book, tentatively titled A Thousand Steps to the Parliament, Women Running for Election in Post-Socialist Neoliberalizing Mongolia. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean Drusha Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.